tracks him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning, fading shot. Up, good for Giannis at the buzzer! Bucks win it! Welcome to Locked On Bucks. I'm your host, Kane Pittman, here again with a special guest today. Uh, we tell you guys we're trying to keep things interesting while basketball is on hiatus. And we've had a couple of, uh, I would say, big-time voices on the podcast the last few weeks. But as far as Bucks fans go, I don't think it gets any bigger than this. Uh, Jim Paschke, we're very happy to have you on the podcast. A long, long-time voice of the, of the Bucks. Everyone knows and recognizes your face and your voice, but we appreciate you jumping on. My pleasure, King. Great to be with you. Now, unfortunately, this time, we were just talking before we started recording. Uh, I didn't get to throw a going away party this time. Uh, I had to get out of Milwaukee a little bit quicker than, than last season. But uh, this is normally a time for you, as I said, 34th year as uh, broadcast in the Bucks, And March is normally a time where things are starting to heat up, certainly in recent times for the Bucks. So this is the first question I ask everyone at the moment, and maybe people are getting sick of hearing this answer, but how are you doing right now uh, in March at a time where, uh, like I said, things we should be entering the business end of the season? Well, it certainly is something that I've never experienced before. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, it's strange. We've been through lockout seasons yeah. a couple of times in my career, but that's on the front end of a season. Uh, you're anxious to get going and you have to wait. This was rather abrupt, and. Um, but we've learned that there's more to life than basketball. Uh, what we're going through now is very important to everyone around the world. Uh, and it's uh, important that we do our part. So uh, it's difficult to not be around the game, but uh, I have to believe that uh, that will happen soon enough. And uh, hopefully there will be uh, a season that can be salvaged. And uh, more than that, I hope that uh, it's a season. It's certainly a season people will always remember, Kane, that we know. <laughs> Uh, we'll see how it plays out. But, uh, you know, one day at a time. It's like that during the season. They say one game at a time. Now we are truly one day at a time. Yeah, I, I have allowed myself to think about that a little bit. The fact that if we do get basketball back, and as you said, this is much bigger than basketball, but if uh, we find a way to, to salvage this season and the Bucks could go on to do what we all hope they did and win a title, it would be uh, one hell of a story. But uh, I want to go down memory lane a little bit with you. And I feel like if we went through every moment you've been through, this, this could go for days. But I, I want to start in the 80s because a, a lot of the listeners and, and myself included uh, have not seen anywhere near enough of that era of the Bucks as we probably should because the Bucks were really, really damn good in the 80s. And I know uh, you started in, in 1986 and this was at the sort of nearing the tail end of a, of a really, really great run for the Bucks in 86. They... Uh, win 50 games, uh, go down to the Celtics, same in 87. Uh, uh, two 50-win seasons in a row, as you know now. Uh, pretty difficult thing to do, particularly for this Bucks franchise. What, how would you describe that 80 era uh, of basketball for the Bucks? Because in many respects, they were uh, ahead of their time. Well, the 80s prior to when I joined the Bucks as the play-by-play announcer were phenomenal. They had great teams, uh, the Sidney Moncrief, Bob Lanier, uh, Marcus Johnson teams, uh, 
on and on. Terry Cummings, I could name 30 players yeah. that contributed yeah. greatly to that run. I covered that team as a member of the local media uh, at the time I was doing uh, sports news on a nightly basis. So I started covering the team in 1980, and uh, that was a great decade. And then in 86, when I started, uh, it was still pretty good. Uh, you mentioned the 250 victory seasons. Jack Sigma's first day with the Bucks was my first day with the Milwaukee <laughs> Bucks, and Scott Skiles' first day with the Milwaukee Bucks. He came in as a rookie. And a little side story, I had known Jack since his days at Illinois Wesleyan University. And uh, that, that day, he said, okay, I have two rookies. And he took Scott Skiles and I to lunch. And uh, that was uh, quite memorable. And then my season started on uh, Halloween night, October 31st, at the Silver Dome in Pontiac, Michigan. And uh, what I remember most about that, looking back on it, is there was a rookie for Detroit who had not one tattoo on his body. He was apparently a very shy young man, but they had high hopes for him. It was the first game ever played in the NBA by Dennis Rodman. <laughs> so Dennis Rodman and I started our career uh, at the same time, uh, obviously uh, on different sides and in different roles. But uh, those were a couple of early highlights for me. But that team was uh, very good, and Jack Sigma anchored a, a defense. Uh, he played center field. You know, we talk about center field and Brooke Lopez. Jack Sickman played center field on those teams, and he had great defenders in front of him. Alvin Robertson uh, led the league in steals one year because Jack was back running the defense, talking, and allowing the players out front to uh, be very aggressive. So that's what I remember mostly. And then, of course, uh, Del Harris was coaching uh, around that time. Mike Dunleavy Sr. was coaching. Frank Hamlin had an interim stint. There were great coaches, uh, and then it moved on from there. But those teams, my first two years were pretty good, I have to admit. <laughs> so, so you mentioned Dale Harris, and, and he comes in, and the Bucks still uh, were in the playoffs for, for a number of years after that. And then uh, there was a, a bit of a barren patch there in terms of postseason play. They missed the uh, playoffs seven years in a row, and, and that's when George Kyle comes in in 98, 99. And, and I think uh, we've particularly had memories come back uh, of that 2001 season just in the last few days here. I know they had... Uh, the game six replay on Fox Sports Wisconsin. But uh, at, at that point when George Carl comes in, you see uh, the big three of Glenn Robinson, San Cassell, and, uh, and Ray Allen, who was in his third year at that time, are really starting to come together. So as you were watching this team through 98, 99, entering into the 2000, 2001 season, that was obviously a great run. Uh, it, did you see that type of season coming in, that type of run from this team and, and the nucleus they had? Well, they had the big three. That's what they were called. And they were certainly talented. Um, I always say that that team could win a lot of games, but you were never sure what they were going to do. Yeah. Uh, you, you, they could lose as easily as they could win, uh, but they won more than they lost. <laughs> and I believe they won 52 games. They were very good. And, but they, they kind of reflected their coach. That was an interesting time in Bucks history. It was um, wild and woolly and fun and circus-like, and they were very successful. George Carl would walk into the arena at the Bradley Center and get standing ovations. Um, it, was, it was something else, and uh, a great time in Bucks history, actually, if you liked. Uh, you know, it, it had a little bit of uh, WWE to it, and uh, that was all fun. It was crazy. And the group of people that was around that team that George brought in, 
uh, were a lot of fun. They were characters, and there are unlimited stories about that group of people. Uh, just a very unique period in Bucks history, I think. To get fit in 2020, you don't have to join a gym or pay a ton for overpriced fitness equipment. The best way to get in the best shape of your life is with Echelon. Go to echelonfit.com to discover their EX1 connected fitness bikes that offer a high-quality at-home cycling experience at less than half the price of a Peloton. Echelon makes beautifully engineered products for everyone, busy mums and dads, first responders, and elite athletes like myself, whatever your activity level. And with daily live and on-demand studio classes right in your home, you'll never have to step foot in the gym. You'll love Echelon, but if you aren't 100% satisfied, we'll give you your money back. Join the hundreds and thousands of men and women who are getting fit with Echelon. Don't pay a ton for Peloton. Buy an Echelon bike today for under 1000 bucks. Go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A to learn about their limited time, free Apple iPad, and complete details of this exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. Echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. So you mentioned the, the standing ovations for George Carl when he was coming into the arena. And, and I obviously wasn't at the Bradley Center for that, but everyone that I speak to says that that was the loudest they have heard a Bucks home crowd. You've obviously uh, been in, in many different home arenas as well. And now Fiserv Forum, which I think we saw last year, Fiserv Forum, while obviously an unbelievable venue, the, the sound does hold a little bit different to what it did at the Bradley Center. Was that 2001 playoff run and the conference finals in particular, the loudest crowd you've heard in Milwaukee? Well, it was certainly um, among the loudest. It was the loudest to that point, I believe. I have to believe, however, that it was pretty loud in the old building in the Mecca, 11,052 seats. I would think that uh, when the Bucks went to the championship round in 1971, that that building was loud too. <laughs> I did not experience that. But uh, certainly 2001 uh, was a decibel breaker and um, I thought that uh, last season in the playoffs Milwaukee responded again the fans in Milwaukee uh, will always be with you but they're not going to give you something you don't deserve but when you deserve it they are loud and they are wonderful and they're exuberant and we've seen that at least three exemplary times in the history of this franchise I believe and we've seen it in the 80s too but uh, we really saw it, I'm sure, in 71, and then in my case, in 2001 and recently. So those conference finals in particular, what sort of stands out to you when you think back to that series? Um, and, and, you know, I mean, there's, there's some obvious ones. Uh, you know, Ray Allen's performances, particularly in Game 6, obviously uh, was unbelievable. And that was one of the first reasons I uh, started to, to fall in love with the game the way that he played Glenn Robertson, maybe a bad memory, unfortunately missing that shot in game five, or maybe from a, I don't know whether you're a conspiracy theorist, uh, Jim, but if you talk to Bucks fans, they will, they will talk forever and ever about uh, the officiating, the suspension that came through that series. I mean, what, what do you look back on as uh, maybe a missed opportunity or something that, that you look back on fondly? Well, the first thing that always comes to mind is Glenn Robinson's missed shot in game five. That's a shot that he would make I don't know, 98, 99 times out of 100 probably. And uh, it just didn't fall for him. And then, of course, Ray Allen's performance in game six. 
Uh, he had an unbelievable shot in that game. And then uh, game seven, it was uh, Rajah Bell is the name that pops out in yeah. my mind. Uh, he had a big game in game seven, and Philadelphia was able to win that series. The Bucks had beaten the Lakers twice that year, yeah. which doesn't happen very often. So we all felt that the Bucks might have given the Lakers a little better test than Philadelphia did. Philadelphia won the first game of the finals because the Lakers had been waiting for some time for our series to end and uh, maybe had a little rust. And then, of course, they won the four after that. But uh, we always felt that the Bucks uh, would have been able to give the Lakers maybe a slightly better test. As far as a conspiracy situation, you know, I never really thought about that. I, I saw what everyone else saw, and I, I saw the league office get involved with Scott Williams after he clotheslined uh, Allen Iverson in game six and could not play in game seven. That was big for the Bucks. It moved people around you know, up in the rotation, et cetera, and it, it just didn't come together. Uh, Scott Williams was a unifying force on that team. Uh, a few years ago, I went back and looked into that during one of my summers, and I looked at the numbers and the statistics, and I don't have them uh, off the top of my head, but uh, when you look at that, it, it's really interesting how one-sided you can make that in your mind if you choose to. Uh, the Bucks did not shoot many free throws. Uh, I don't know if Glenn Robinson shot a free throw until game five in that series, for example. And Glenn Robinson, you know, was a guy that uh, could draw fouls. Uh, so there are things that people can see. Um, I would never say that there was a conspiracy or that there was anything going on. But when you look at the numbers, it certainly gets your attention. So uh, before I, I move on, I want to get to some of the other uh, probably bigger moments that the Bucks had through uh, prior to 2010, there's a couple that really stand out for me. But Ray Allen in general, I, I think, I mean, everyone knows how it ended and people have their feelings about the trade. There's no doubt about that. But but him as a player in Milwaukee, I mean, it's certainly arguable. You can make the case to say that he played his best basketball in Milwaukee. I think that uh, fans that came to the game a little bit later on remember Ray Allen as uh, a beautiful uh, having that beautiful jump shot that we've all seen and being an outside shooter. But in Milwaukee, he did it all. He would put the ball on the floor. He would dunk on you. He had the, all those finishes around the rim. And then, obviously, he could still shoot the three. I mean, how enjoyable is that uh, sort of six-year six period for you getting to watch him play, coming as a rookie, and then, and then really almost be at his best at, at that time? Well, in my time and in my experience, Ray Allen was a unique player because he was different than other players in the sense that he was well-rounded and had other interests off the court. Um, he was into a lot of different things. Uh, he, he still is. And, and I always thought that that was a plus. Uh, some old school people think that you should be basketball and basketball yeah. only. So that's the first thing that I recognized about Ray Allen. Um, I liked his worldliness. I liked his outside interests. I found him to be a very interesting player. And of course, his skill level was incredible. Um, it's funny because within the last couple of months, I, uh, we were in Detroit, as I recall, and it was uh, 17th anniversary of the trade. Yes. And um, I, I uh, had some fun with it. People kind of thought I hadn't said anything for 18 years or 17 years and went off. And, and I said it was the worst trade in Bucks history, which I probably believe. Um, but it was kind of funny. People uh, thought I was just, uh, you know, going off the handle. It was tongue-in-cheek to a degree, but uh, I think the point is pretty clear that that was uh, not a good trade. Ray Allen wanted to play his entire career in Milwaukee. I don't know if he would have. Uh, and, you know, Herb Cole, unfairly, is 
you know, held accountable for that, which, of course, ultimately, I suppose he has to be. But there was so much that went into that. I don't hold him accountable because I know how he felt. And I know that he did not want to make that trade. He was talked into it on some level. And, um, you know, there were money issues uh, moving forward with that they had to consider and all of that. And uh, so it, it, it really is kind of unfair to Senator Cole because I know how he felt about Ray Allen. I know how he felt about keeping him in Milwaukee. But uh, that doesn't take away the fact, and I'm sure Senator Cole would tell you that uh, that was probably his least favorite trade as well. Um, but Ray Allen was a great player, and uh, it was wonderful to watch him night in and night out. He was a talent and, uh, you know, all-time leading three-point shooter in the NBA, so uh, he had a skill, didn't he? Yeah, unfortunately, as you sort of pointed to, there's some trades that, that look bad on paper straight away, and then you, you wait to see how they play out. And uh, unfortunately for the Bucks, that one uh, only got worse, <laughs> and probably pretty quickly when you see how things played out. But uh, these other incidents that I was talking about that came in the same season, Brandon Jennings, 55 points, obviously a game that Bucks fans uh, will really never forget. I mean, uh, ultimately... Jennings, while having a pretty good NBA career, obviously he moved on and had some injuries. He didn't fulfill what maybe uh, we hoped he was going to get to, particularly after having that game so early in his career. But the other one later in the season, Andrew Bogut, and and these are two very uh, different incidents and different atmospheres in the Bradley Center. I'm not sure, while I wasn't there watching on TV, I'm not sure I've heard uh, the Bradley Center as quiet as it was when Bogut went down. Uh, what's your memories of that season, maybe those two incidents? And, and I know from having Bogut on this podcast uh, uh, earlier on in the season, uh, he still looks back on that season as a huge missed opportunity for the Bucks, who were playing incredibly well. And Bogut was at his best uh, up until the injury. He certainly was. Um, I'll address that first. Um, I have never witnessed an injury quite as gruesome as that one in person. Um, the building went stone cold, silent in an instant. And then we were left to try and figure out what to say. And it was difficult. Um, I remember we ran the replay and I hit my button to the producer and I said, let's not do that too many times. Yeah. Uh, It was one that you could replay once in my opinion, uh, twice at the very most. uh, And we just waited and, tried to work our way through that. That was uh, very devastating. Um, I remember it wasn't a push, it was a touch, but Amari Stoudemire was a big man. So when you're in the air, any touch, that's one thing that I tried to explain to people at the time was you can't tell how much pressure was on that touch. And it could have been great. Uh, It just was a bad situation. the coach came up, the opposing coach came up after the game, Alvin Gentry, and, and saw me in the hallway, and he said, Jim, we're devastated by this. He said he did not, he wasn't trying to hurt him, and he was very apologetic. So I always remember that from that particular instance. Uh, the Bucks were playing so well, and, and, and that was a cloud uh, over that team, and that year it parked right over Milwaukee. Uh, earlier in the season, Brandon Jennings, uh, that was a night I'll never – forget for a lot of reasons he was pretty new to the NBA I think what was it the seventh game of his career and he had 10 points in the first quarter <laughs> no no points in the second quarter and the Bucks were 
trying to hang in there with Golden State. And I remember saying very early in the third quarter, for some reason, I said, I feel like something's going to happen here. And I said that on the air. And I don't know why I said that. I just had a feeling that something was coming. And, of course, he uh, went for 40, whatever it was, 46 points, 40, no, 45 points in the second half. I'm trying to recall, uh, with 29 in the third quarter, maybe. But um, it was spectacular. It was shot after shot, make after make. I mean, it was a performance uh, that you rarely see. And um, the only one I would equate to that in my time was the 57 that Michael Red had against yeah. Utah, which is the all-time high for a single game by a Milwaukee Buck. And uh, Michael Red had the final shot in that game, a three-pointer that was missed that would have given him 60. And uh, everybody thought Jerry Sloan was going to take a timeout. Utah went the other way and got the lay-in, essentially, and beat the Bucks. But, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. The, the high-scoring games uh, once in a while are in losses, and those are different than when you put up 55. And, uh, you know, that was amazing. That was a great night for Jennings, and uh, it looked like the Bucks really had something. I was always a fan of his, by the way. I thought that he had uh, a great desire and, and – will to play the game and a will to win. Uh, his career was uh, a little different than I thought it might be, but uh, I'll never forget that night, Kane. So uh, we do, I, I think it, it would be ridiculous if we didn't jump ahead to, to the Giannis years. Obviously, uh, really, uh, from the rookie season where obviously the Bucks did not win many games, but he was the bright light right from the start. You could see the potential was there. I don't think too many people would have envisaged that he would have uh, made the jump that he has to, you know, arguably the best player in the world so quickly. But the Jason Kidd years are interesting because I think a lot of Bucks fans will look back on, on those negatively. But uh, the reality is that, that during that time, Giannis went from, uh, you know, developing prospect, his body, his skills, everything to, to an MVP caliber player. And when I spoke to um, Jared Dudley last season and, and about uh, the connection that Kidd had with Giannis, but also Kidd with potentially some other players and, and the player that he highlighted was Jabari Parker. Jason Kidd was a hard guy and he, he ran things old school and I, I don't think it particularly, uh, you know, meshed well with all the players. It, it certainly didn't, didn't appear so. I mean, how do you look back at those years? Because I, I do think even though at some points it was frustrating, he didn't feel like the Bucks were getting the best out of themselves. Uh, it's hard to look back at them too negatively when you, when you think purely about uh, what Giannis has been able to do? Well, I think, I think Jason Kidd had a bigger picture than most people were able to see. Okay. Um, that team didn't win the way fans wanted them to win, and when that happens, then you're looking at the negatives. But I thought there were a lot of positives in that run. Now, of course, it broke down in a way that, I can't really comment on, and, and there were changes and all of that. But when you look at what he tried to do for the franchise, and you can, dis you, you can dis debate or dispute his methods perhaps, he was certainly old school, but he tried to make this team tough. And maybe he ran them a little too hard. Um, maybe he wore them out a little too much to the players' liking. But he was trying to instill the kind of toughness and the kind of resolve that it takes to win a championship. And you have to be insanely tough to hold the trophy. And I think that was something, I know that was what he was trying to do. And then when it comes to Giannis, I think that history will 
show to those who understand that what he did with Giannis accelerated Giannis's ability to learn the game. He put the ball in his hands for a purpose. I don't believe Jason Kidd thought that Giannis would ever become a point guard. But he did believe that by making him a temporary point guard, an interim point guard, a point guard for a time, that he would learn the game differently with the ball in his hands than he would have playing off the ball. And I think that's so very true. I think we see it every day now. I think we see Giannis's vision. I think we see Giannis's passing. I think we see Giannis being able to look over a defense from 6'11". Jason Kidd used to joke that he had to stand on a chair to see the game the way Giannis sees the game. But he worked with him on that. So I always felt that he was doing Giannis and the franchise a great service by putting the ball in his hands. Because Giannis, remember, hadn't played at a high level. He was a young man. And he had a great desire to win and learn. And Jason Kidd accelerated that by having him handle the ball. And he told me, Jason used to tell me, he said, Jim, He's learning the game with the ball in his hands, and when he doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's going to see it like the point guard sees it, and he's going to get to spots. He's going to create situations because he knows how to do that after having had the ball in his hands. So I think that that was a wonderful thing and a wonderful gift to the franchise that Jason Kidd has given both Giannis and the team. And I'm sure that if you asked Mike Budenholzer, he would probably tell you that Giannis's ability was, was helped a great deal by that particular move by Jason Kidd. So we see what Giannis does on the floor on a, on a daily basis. We, uh, yeah, we, we are fortunate enough to see him at practice and how hard he works. But I, I know that uh, you have a, a connection with Giannis that goes beyond the job. And uh, you talk about a guy that came in as a, <laughs> a really skinny teenager. Uh, his English wasn't the best. Uh, he was coming into a completely new environment uh, in America and, and doing it under the spotlight of being an NBA player. How have you seen Giannis grow from that teenager and on the personal level that you've seen him um, to become uh, leader of the family, the man of the family, and, and also a leader on the basketball court and the guy that uh, everyone in, not only on court, but the Bucks organization looks up to as a, as a guy to be, to be proud of that, that he's in the city of Milwaukee? Well, a couple of things came. Uh, you know, people think that I have a very close relationship with Giannis, and I do, but it's not a day-to-day. For sure. We don't, we're, not, we're not buddies. We have respect for each other, and I don't know how that happened, but I know that it did happen. It's perhaps because I was there at the beginning, yeah. and I took an interest in him as he took an interest in everyone around the team. He was a kid who wanted to soak everything in. When I met him, we said hello, and we introduced ourselves. And a few days later, he walked up to me and asked me which players he should look at on tape on YouTube to learn how to play the game. And so that was kind of the start of it, and I gave him a few ideas. Um, I always try to know my place. It's not for me to tell him. I said, what are the coaches telling you? <laughs> and and I, I said, that's not – I'm the announcer, Giannis. I, I'm not the coach. But he said, but you've seen players. And, and I said, you know, I remember saying, um, you know, you could look at certain players. And, and one that I pointed out to him that I'm recalling at the moment here is Jack Sikma. I said he had a move that someone at your height could learn, and it's a great move. And I don't know if he 
watch that, that reverse pivot. I, I don't see it too much yet and the ball way over your head that's unblockable and all of that. But the point is, is that he was a student of the game. And I see that an awful lot from European players and foreign-born players. I mean, the NBA is maybe a little different to them. Reaching the NBA might be different to them than it is to a player coming up to the great American basketball system where they can go online when they're in the seventh grade and know where they're ranked at their position. Um, it, it, maybe, maybe players in this country, you know, have a greater expectation of the NBA than foreign-born players do. When they get here, they know where they are. The foreign-born players know how this is the pinnacle. And it means something to them. In many cases, I've noticed a difference. And I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I do notice a difference. They, they really know where they are when they get here. And Giannis was certainly in that category. He was thrilled to be here, and he would have done anything to stay. And he has proven to us that he has done whatever it takes to stay, and not only stay, but to be the MVP of the league in six very short seasons, in my opinion. <laughs> and um, But to answer your question, the reason we see what we see is because Giannis is the same person yeah. at 18 as he is today, seven years later. He's just a great kid. He has a great heart. That's all I've ever seen is a heart. And it comes out when he and I get together, we talk once a year yeah. formally. We do an interview in August or September when he gets back from whatever he's done all summer. And we've done this three or four times now. And I don't know how or why we have been able to get the material from those talks other than the fact that I go in without any preparation, not any formal preparation, and he comes in and we talk and there's a respect both ways and he gives me unbelievable things. And I don't think I'm asking particularly brilliant questions, but I have been able to ask him things that maybe I know because I was there at the beginning and I have a feel for the human and I respect the human. And I think that's what comes out in those interviews is how I see him as a person and then I apply it to basketball and he gives me wonderful answers because they are intertwined. The great people, the great talents, the MVPs, the Hall of Famers all have something special. And they all have great skill, but they all have something special before that. And that's what I see in Giannis. And I can ask him things without even thinking about it. I'm not worried about anything I ask him because I know that he will think about it and he will have a quick, contemplative, and heartfelt, and more often than not, always actually an intelligent answer. I mean, he's a terrific person. What comes out in those interviews is how I view Giannis Adetokounmpo. Yeah, there's, uh, I, I will say, and, and those are the interviews that I think stands out to everyone because, as you said, you do this in August and September and, and uh, the responses he gives and, and the way that these interviews play out is, is so good and, and uh, the, the information and the answers are, are so interesting to everyone that uh, cares about the Bucks or Giannis that uh, you use that stuff for a whole year. It gets through a whole year, which is the remarkable <laughs> thing about that. But 
I, I don't, I mean, last year was obviously a remarkable season for the Bucks, an incredible run and, and something we haven't seen for a long time. But the, the question I want to ask you, we were both in Toronto and the unfortunate thing about uh, the, making such a deep playoff run is that you call all the games and then the local broadcast by the second round, uh, you don't get to call the games anymore. So I'm wondering how uh, are you feeling watching the games, not being able to call just in the, in the stands uh, as a fan of the game and, and the way that that panned out in Toronto? Because, uh, we, I mean, the, the atmosphere inside the building was absolutely unbelievable. But if you care about the Bucks and you want the Bucks to win, it was obviously a, a tough scene. Well, first and foremost, I would always rather be broadcasting a game than watching a game. Yeah. But secondly, I would rather be at a game than not being at a game. That's <laughs> true. <Sure, sure. laughs> so, yes, it would be wonderful to take a team all the way through to the finals, but uh, television, national television plays, pays a lot of money, and uh, I understand all of that. It's been that way for some time, so it's just part of the deal. We get the first round. Uh, last year, that was four games in Detroit. Um, we'll see what happens this year, but, uh, I'm just happy to be there. We cover it. Uh, we cover it every game and, um, I enjoyed that. It's a different, uh, entirely different situation for me. The preparation is different. It's more acute. You're looking at specific things, uh, that we want to talk about when we're not calling the game. When you're calling the game, you have to have much deeper preparation and you have to have, uh, a lot of nuance, uh, hopefully within the telecast, uh, based on preparation. But uh, there's nothing like doing uh, those big games. And, um, you know, I, I don't regret it, but uh, it certainly would be nice to have uh, called that entire series last year. Uh, the final game would have been difficult, but um, it still would have been an interesting test. Uh, that's why we're here, and, and that's what we love to do. Uh, so it was, it was great being in the building uh, other than the loss. But uh, the atmosphere was phenomenal. I expect that when we go to Toronto. I expect that during a regular season game in Toronto. Uh, there are more periods of quiet during a regular season game, but those fans know when to, when to get loud and, and they, they know what they're doing up there. That's a great atmosphere, one of the best atmospheres in the league, in my opinion. But, um, you know, overall it was a great experience and uh, it was heartbreaking. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. The, everyone thinks the Bucks lost four straight games after winning the first two, which they did. However, uh, if you break it down, as our coaching staff and our basketball staff have done, they probably lost four or five plays in game three that turned the tide, and uh, they weren't able to uh, get out of that. Sometimes when you, you, know, you, you pick a thread out of a sweater, the sweater is gone, and uh, that's what we saw. But uh, the lesson is a great lesson. Uh, it can turn on a dime. Uh, it can turn on a pulled thread. And the Bucks know that now. And they came out this year and have shown me through the games that we've seen that uh, they learned that lesson because they have had a, a resolute approach uh, to this game this year that uh, I think could carry them further and perhaps to a championship. So uh, that's all good. I, I was hoping to see that after the disappointment of game six last year. So I've only got a couple more. I, like I said, I could probably hold you for hours and hours, but I, I, it would be... I feel like it would be wrong of me to do this podcast and not ask you about the relationship and the partnership you've had with uh, Johnny Mac over the years. Because I think uh, if, you're, if you're a broadcasting duo and you get to the point where you have your own bobblehead together, then, then to me, uh, that is, you, you have reached the, the absolute peak. I mean, you were with that guy, obviously, for a long, long time. Anyone that's watched the Bucks for any period of time 
ties a lot of memories to to the voices of both of you two. So, uh, you know, when you think back to the time you had with, with Johnny Mac, how, how did that partnership develop and, and how enjoyable, I guess, was that stretch to be on the road and be at so many games with, with a guy like that? Well, it's interesting. You know, they you can do a lot of things or you can be a part of a lot of things, but uh, they say when you have a bobblehead, you've really made it. I don't know about that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, that was, that was nice. That was for our 25th season together. We worked uh, essentially 33 years. Uh, the 33rd year, John didn't do as many games, but uh, that's a long run. And in our business, you know, very often they just throw two people out there and yep. uh, say, go at it. And uh, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it works for 30-plus years. Um, that was incredible. And obviously, uh, that will be something that I will always be connected to, and proudly so. Um, it, was, it was wonderful. John took me in. I, I didn't know anything. You know, I didn't know what I was doing back in 1986-87, and, and I learned from him every night we worked together. And... Um, I, I was learning in year 33 from John. So uh, he came every night. I, I never worried about that part of the broadcast. I knew that John would be there. I knew what he would give us. I knew that it would be good. I knew that he would have fun with the broadcast. And um, that took a lot of pressure off of me. Um, over the years, you know, I hope I developed my skills to the point where I became not an equal partner, but closer to an equal partner to John. And um, I think it was pretty effortless for many of the years down the stretch together. And, uh, you know, I did my work. I prepared. John did his work and prepared. We got together and we did a basketball game. And, you know, for the most part, I think uh, people enjoyed it. Sometimes maybe they didn't. Uh, some of that was based on the quality of the team. I mean, we had a lot of teams that uh, didn't win a lot of games. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'll never forget. Uh, we did 30 games on TV in the early years. And at the end of one season, the PR director at the time, Bill King, said, Jim, do you realize what just happened? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, we did opening night on television and won the game, and then they lost the next 29. <laughs> so one year we were 1-29 and 29 on uh, television. And I think this, the moral of that story is I didn't realize it because – I'm not keeping track of that. You know, we're doing basketball. We're doing every game as an entity uh, unto itself. And then, of course, they are stitched together to make a season. But, you know, we, we just did the game and tried to uh, respect opponents and, and respect our franchise. And, um, you know, it was a wonderful run with John. And, and we, uh, we had a lot of good times personally uh, off the court and – you know, I will always consider him a dear friend, and, and he's meant an awful lot to my life, my career, my family, all of it. And uh, that doesn't come around very often. And then <laughs> when John pulls back, I get to work with Marcus Johnson <laughs> and Steve Novak. So who's the lucky one here, Cam? No, I, it's funny that you, you mentioned the, the Bucks. that obviously their records weren't uh, great for a number of those years. And I'll, I'll never forget feeling like just about every single uh, Bucks game that I would be watching um, from over here in Australia and you would hear uh, Johnny Mac say, well, look, you know, the Bucks are still a chance here. They just need a stop in a bucket and a stop in a bucket. And it felt like uh, that, was, that was every single game because the Bucks were always 10 points behind and they were only five stops and five buckets away from getting back in the game. But uh, you mentioned Marcus. Obviously, you've um, called games with 
uh, Sydney Moncrief for a while there, Steve Novak. But uh, Marcus is, I mean, he is honestly just a treat. Uh, you know, I came back to Milwaukee a little bit later this season. And, and one of the best things about that was I got to watch League Pass and listen uh, to you two. But I, I'm not sure I've heard you in all the years that I've been watching the Bucks laugh as much as you do uh, every broadcast uh, sitting next to Marcus. Well, he is sneaky funny, and uh, he, his timing is impeccable. He, he gets me. I mean, those are – you know, I'll, I'd say this to John, too. Once in a while I laughed at him just because I thought I should. But with Marcus, Marcus gets me. That's an honest laugh. I mean, he gets me. He comes out of left field, and, and I can't help it. I mean, he, I, I find him to be truly funny. But they've all been great. Sidney Moncrief was, was terrific. Sidney was uh, – you know, he had been a coach with the Bucks, and so he was really plugged in. And Steve Novak, you know, came to our business shortly after leaving the league as a player. So he's totally plugged into what's going on in the league, knows everybody. And, uh, you know, I think he's running for mayor half the time, the way guys <laughs> come up to him all the time. But I've been very fortunate to work with wonderful people. And, uh, you know, Marcus is, uh, Marcus is great. He, 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 the thing about Marcus is the work that he does basketball has truly been his life. And I asked him about that. I said, you know, tell me about this. And he said, Jim, it's been my life. It is my life. I love it. And you can tell by some of his tweets, I was reading some tweets today. He's going back and talking about high school players. And I mean, he knows everybody and he knows their game. And it's just incredible to uh, work alongside somebody who has that kind of recall and that kind of depth of knowledge about the player's all across the country. I mean, it's, it's, I just marvel at some of the things that uh, he comes up with. And uh, I just try to, uh, you know, give him room and, and stay out of the way a little <laughs> bit and have some fun and, uh, you know, try to call an accurate game, but it's been fun. And uh, I love every night with uh, all the guys I've worked with really. Okay. So uh, I want to play some audio uh, before we wrap this up. Uh, I found this, when I was uh, obviously preparing for this, a lot of this stuff is Buck stuff that I feel like I didn't need to prepare too much for and I could just let you uh, roll with it. But I, I came across this YouTube clip and I hope you can hear this audio. I just want to play this now. Rick get on first with two outs in the ninth. The Brewers lead seven to nothing. Hit in the air. Yount. Makes a great catch and won the Amos. Has thrown the first no-hitter in Milwaukee Brewer history. What else can happen to this team? Juan the Amos has no-hit the Baltimore Orioles on a great game-ending catch by Rod. So, uh, first of all, could you hear that? I could. You're trying to make me feel old, aren't you? <laughs> no. Well, I and this was this was uh, fun for me to find out. I didn't know, uh, honestly, and I feel bad about that, but I didn't know that you called uh, Brewers play-by-play. -play, but April 15, 1987, you were on the call for the first no-hitter in Brewers history. And the only one. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what, do you, what do you think so about in that? 15 days, that will be 33 years ago. Um, I can remember it as if it were yesterday. Uh, Brandon Jennings had 55 in his seventh NBA game. I called a no-hitter or had the privilege of calling a no-hitter in my fifth telecast in Major League Baseball. So uh, <laughs> fate is a funny thing. Um, talk about not knowing what you were doing. I, I <laughs> was working with Mike Hegan, and after we got through the sixth inning, we go to right before the seventh, I said, what do I do? And he said, don't mention it. <laughs> and that was kind of an old-school baseball thing. The media got on me for not – Never use the word no-hitter. I mean, we were running the line score over the pitcher. 
on the mound. You, you had to, I don't know how you could miss it. And, and in retrospect, I would have been, and I had other close calls. I, I had Teddy Aguera in Kansas City and uh, Odell Jones had a perfect game going into the eighth inning in Cleveland and a no-hitter going into the ninth uh, and gave up a hit to Ron Washington. But, uh, and in those games, I probably used a little different language uh, to, you know, make people more attuned to what was going on. But uh, the media got on me for not saying no hitter, and Mr. Selig the next night said, he got it, didn't he? You did the right thing. <laughs> so that was a long time ago. You couldn't get away with that today. But it's funny because uh, whenever the Brewers have a no hitter going, even to this day, uh, my phone starts, you know, buzzing and going crazy. No hitter, no hitter, no hitter. And uh, they all wonder when it will be mentioned. And, you know, sometimes as soon as it's mentioned, the hit's there. But uh, baseball's a funny game. And, um, you know, I, I look back on that fondly. Um, again, I had no clue what I was doing. I just tried to get through that game and uh, was privileged to be able to say that I had the opportunity to do that. It was, it was fantastic. Juan Nieves on tax day, 1987. I can tell you, you can find an extended version of that on YouTube. So, Hey, I mean, people have, have only got time at the moment to, to spend time on the internet and on YouTube. So uh, maybe if you're a Brewers fan, you want to go back and listen to that call, but Jim, uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. I've been fortunate enough over the last a couple of seasons to spend some time with you and talk to you at practices and games and all the rest. And, and that's been an honor for me, but uh, you know, thanks again for, for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. Kane, it's my pleasure. And uh, you know, you've been pretty impressive to me too, uh, coming over here to uh, cover the NBA the way you did and doing such a wonderful job at it. And I should turn this around and ask you about that because I think that's a great story, but thank you for having me on. And it's always great to talk Bucks basketball.